I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson, and I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word. I'm glad you're taking the time to grow in your understanding of God's Holy Word. I invite you to visit JillGrossman.com. There you'll find additional resources to help you fall in love with God's Word even more, such as books, speaking topics, and workshops. Now, let's get started with today's lesson. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this lecture. I thank you for what you've given me. And I pray, Father, now that you just pour into what you want and let what you don't want fall aside. I thank you for this group. And it is a coveted time. And I ask for you to come in. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, the last part of chapter 4 that we left off in last, last week was King Nebuchadnezzar re- is recorded in his own words as um, saying, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just. And he doesn't stop there, though. He finishes up a thought from a very hard and painful lesson that he had learned, and that is he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So, now we're coming up to this. Oh, let me go, uh, keep going. And backing up even farther back to chapter 2, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar when he interpreted the dream that the king had dreamt regarding the statue in his kingdom that the gold head on the statue would not last. So this is all coming to a head. No pun intended. Hey. Um, and, and proving the truth of the prophecy that was foretold. You know, I just had to get it in there. I had to get that one little pun. I'm terrible at it, but I had to get it in there. So anyway, so here in this chapter, we're going to meet King Belshazzar. So let's get an idea context here. It had been 23 years since the passing of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when he wrote chapter 4, we knew he was in the latter part of his reign We don't know how long he reigned after that, and we don't know what age and when he passed away. But we already know he had been a king for quite a while and was at the latter part of his reign, possible life. So after he died, we're at this point, chapter 5, 23 years had passed. And it is believed that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Now, here's how he came to be. Just get ready for this. Okay, so I put a chart together. We have Nebuchadnezzar, and then he had a son called Evil Merodach, who served two years, or some translations call him Emil Marduk. Now, if you notice, um, Emil and Labishi, Marduk. Marduk is the name of a god, so they are named after a god, but those are, but these are just a different, depends on the translation. Emil Marduk or Evil Merodach. Okay, this was his only son. And, some, and so he reigned only two years, but what happens is he got assassinated by the power-hungry brother-in-law, General Nerigalesser. And another possible motive for assassinating evil Merodach, it could have been because he favored the Jews. Remember, he's Nebuchadnezzar's only son, so he's under his wing here. And the only mention of him in the scriptures is his act of liberating the Jewish king Jehoiakim which was King Josiah's grandson. And if you remember, Daniel was born and up until the age of 15 when he was taken in captivity was brought under the wonderful teachings and the kingship of King Josiah who was the last good king. He was the good, good, good king of Judah. 
and he got rid of all the idols and all the asher poles and all the stuff of the land and got the people back into the traditional ways, back into the Jewish ways. So all that Daniel knows came under King Josiah. So that's why this is important. But let's look at scripture. Well, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27 through 30. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month that Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given uh, him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So... That might be why he was assassinated. But one of the commentators said this. One wonders if King Emil Marduk, there you see the other translation, who reaped the wrath of the Babylonian hierarchy and was assassinated, might not have continued in Nebuchadnezzar's new faith, something the powerful priestly society in Babylon would not tolerate. So it's quite possible. So anyway, so let's go back to our chart. All right, so General Neraglesser stole the crown from the, you know, after he assassinated Evil Merodach and then reigned for six years. Then he dies. We don't know how he dies. He just dies, maybe natural causes, I don't know. And then his son, Labishi Marduk, came in, but he stepped into power, but his rule was only lasted a couple of months because he too was assassinated. Some say it was a coup led by um, Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus, some... Uh, so, uh, well, okay, yeah. And it, he was next in line to take over the throne. So he was also a general in an army. I don't know if he's a general. He was in the army. He was a warrior. He was always gone and fighting. And then after three years went by, he's like, man, I'm gone all the time trying to secure the borders and all this stuff, so I'm going to have my son come in and serve with me as a, a co-regent king co-ruler. And this had been done before because in chapter 1 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is the co-leader because his dad, Nobopolassar, is king and they both were kings together, if you recall. So this was already practiced and seen, so that is that is quite possible. So Nabonidus was not in Babylon very often. He was out fighting. So Belshazzar was the king that was present. And so that's how he came to be after um Oh, my gosh, that's a typo. 23 years, that says 43 years. Didn't catch that. Oopsie. Okay, so um, so anyway, for, uh, 23 years had passed that we got up to this point. Belshazzar is a spoiled, arrogant, self-centered, and self-absorbed leader as, as well as he is very overconfident. No invader, though, had a- ever stormed and been able to penetrate the gates of Babylon for over 1,000 years. So I'll give them that. Maybe it's false sense of security, but a thousand years is a long time, and, but you kind of get comfortable in your power, right? And they say, never say never. Remember the walls of Babylon that I showed you last, year, last week. Babylon thought it was impenetrable, and so it had a false sense of security. Another thing that brought to mind when I was writing this is in the Titanic. And it is written and it recorded that a woman came on the Titanic and talked to one of the stewards as she was checking in and she said are you sure the Titanic's not going to sink and the stewards recorded this saying madam 
God himself cannot sink the ship. Never say never. So anyway, meanwhile, let's go back to our story. In the distance, there's a Persian king named Cyrus the Great, and his army was moving rapidly uh, southward toward Babylon. And seeing the growing threat, Nabonidus comes out of Babylon and comes to meet him. Now see, the Persian Empire is huge, and this is the Babylonian Empire. And so uh, Cyrus the Great's coming out here, and this is a little city called Opus, and that is where Nabonidus comes up, and they meet, and they clash. But Cyrus the Great's army is so great, uh, Nabonidus can't hold him, and he is forced to retreat and withdraw, and Cyrus is open to just start moving straight into Babylon. Now, what I don't know is what happened. Was Nabonidus killed, or did he just retreat and flee and die in exile? I don't know. But um, So that's what hap- happens. People come in and they tell Belshazzar, Belshazzar, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. You know, uh, you know uh, Cyrus the Great has broken through and they're heading to Babylon. And he says, oh, big woo. You know, no one has penetrated these walls for over a thousand years. Nothing's going to happen. He makes light of the news. He makes so light of the news that he, even though he knows Cyrus is close to the city, he throws a party. He decides to throw this big feast for a thousand nobles, and he also decides to drink wine in the presence of the people. So we touched on that in the study, but it was not customary at all for a king to do this. You see, Kings would separate themselves in a little room and have their wine, and maybe they'd come back out and mix and mingle, but the people were never to see them drink because they were to set the standard for the people. Well, this was not regal that Belshazzar did this. So he's like, hey, man, it's party, you know? So he's, he's influencing the rest of the people, and they're following suit. Well, if the king's going to have some wine, I'm going to have some wine. If we're going to do this, we'll all do that, you know? So you always follow the leader. Um, and they were all getting drunk. So he was self-serving and overconfident because no one could ever defeat Babylon. That's always the attitude. Well, let's go to scripture. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Hmm. So, Belshazzar begins to feel invincible, and in his drunken bravado, he performs a brazen act of blasphemy. And I don't know how else to say it, but it was a brazen act of blasphemy that no other Babylonian king before him dared to do. And there's a saying I heard a long time ago say, that says, what goes down in the well comes up in the bucket. So, in other words, Scripture says in Matthew 15, 18, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. So when Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem... As king, he took the captives, but he took the stored treasures of the temple and to show respect and value for the sacredness, he didn't use them, he stored them. He stored them to show that I've got you and he understood their greatness, but he didn't use them. Uh, I think that was just sort of a a respect thing. But by using those treasures to toast his gods, Belshazzar, I'm talking about here, he showed contempt for his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. So God says, you guys are lying here. Enough is enough. Do not mock me. And in Galatians 6, 7, it says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So as I was thinking about this, this is like going to a traditional church, like Westminster Abbey. And you go in there and you know that these priests, you know, it, it, 
it's all very traditional and all very regal and respectful. And they've got these gorgeous goblets of silver that have these engravings and you take your communion with them. It's like we all jump in there and we grab all that stuff and we go down to the local pub and we pour beer with our guys and their sweaty t-shirts and they're junk, you know, and you're like, you know, it's like there's, there's no reverence. There's no respect. There's, and this, that's what Belshazzar is doing. It's just, wow, major cross the line. So God responds to Belshazzar's arrogance. And suddenly, fingers appear. And uh, fingers of a human hand appear and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand of the royal palace, it says in verse 5. Now the room we're talking about that they're in that has been um, uncovered by some archaeologists and the dimensions are about 56 feet wide and 170 feet long. So I'd say an average from this wall to the end of the wall over there is, would you say 50, maybe, maybe longer, maybe wider? I'm really bad with that. But let me say it this way. An average house lot is about 50 feet wide. And 170 feet long is almost four of them put together. So in short, it's one house lot wide and four house lots long. So it's one big, long, rectangular thing. It's more rectangular than it is wide. So in the center part of the wall was covered with some kind of plaster, and the word lampstand is here. And scholars consider it to reference some kind of large chandelier with candles and such, or torches. So in other words, God picked the lightest part of the room to write on the wall. So God doesn't do anything by accident. There is a definite purpose to everything he does. So you can kind of say God was offering his own PowerPoint presentation there for all the people to see. So there are no more dreams. There's no more visions to interpret here. Now the message is scrolled for everyone to see in full view of the king and his guests. God was speaking directly now. I should say writing directly now. Mm -hmm. Um, this is where the term, you were talking about Michael, this is where the term handwriting on the wall comes from. Oh my gosh, it's all the handwriting on the wall. It does come from this point in scripture. So Daniel notes, because uh, he's writing this now, Daniel notes that we see the king is truly frightened because his knees buckle. Experts say that shock produces sobriety. So he was literally shocked back into sobriety, so, in soberness. And so had Belshazzar, though, read any of Jeremiah's prophecies, which Jeremiah was doing a lot of prophesying before Israel was taken into captivity, warning, 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 all that stuff. And he went on into captivity also, but he did a lot of pre-prophecy captivity. His thoughts might have been, Belshazzar's thoughts might have, and behavior might have been different. Long before the Persians ruled the area, Jeremiah said that Babylon would be attacked by a nation from the north. That was one of his prophecies. And the Lord speaks about 70 years, about the 70 years that the nation will serve Babylon. Now, he was talk, Jeremiah was talking about Judah serving in captivity. But at this time in history, Judah is around the 70-year mark. We're coming up on it. We're not quite there, but we're coming up on it. And so, um, and this is what the Lord says will happen next. We're either right at it or right, right, we're close. So this is what Jeremiah says. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, so, well, you know what? Because of scripture, we must be right at the 70 year mark. I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord. No, declares the Lord. These are his, his words. He's speaking. And 
will make it desolate forever. Now, I underline that because I want you to remember that. Desolate forever. I will bring on the land all the things um, I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. That's pretty clear to me. And that's uh, in Jeremiah 25, 12 through 14. But Belshazzar did not read Jeremiah's prophecy as far as we know, or didn't heed it, that's for sure. The Lord is making himself clear to this king. However, the king needs an interpreter, and it is clearly not, not one of his court advisors or enchanters. So again, the Lord works things out and has a plan to bring Daniel back in. So think of the chaos and the panic that's going on here. Belshazzar offers prestige to the ones who can interpret this. I can just hear it. All this noise and all this, ah, you know how people are when they're, you know, frightened. And he's like, hold on, hold on. I'll offer, I'll offer uh, robes and, and gold chains and, and, and the third to be in line. And the robes were representative of royalty because they were purple robes. And then the golden chains signify the high office of government. And then the third highest position is because he doesn't know Nabonidus has fleed or is killed. He doesn't know. He's actually, it's really the second in command. But from his point of view, he's writing. That's why he says third in command. So no one can read it here. And so here enters the queen. Most commentators agree that this is Nitocris is her name. It is assumed she is the daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar and married Nabinidus, and Belshazzar is her son. Oh, joy. She would remember Daniel and his holiness and his holy God and how he served her father. That's why she kind of has this connection of this integral man prophet. Let's bring him in. And so she suggests to her son to call on him. Now, we can only imagine where Daniel is in regards to his status in the royal courts because we've had all these assassinations and all these changeovers. So I don't know if he was just pushed aside and staying quiet or what he, what he was doing as far as he was serving. Maybe he wasn't needed anymore. I don't know. Um, Daniel's probably in his late 70s around here, early 80s. He's up in years. And he is not unknown to Belshazzar although he probably had no opportunity to see what this aging prophet prophet could really do because he took no advantage of it. He had no need for him. However, it does seem to show a lack of character, and we did touch on this, to refer to this distinguished former high-ranking government official as an exile from Judah. Um, Because remember, if he's in his late 70s, he was brought into exile when he was 15, this, and he, now he refers to him after all these years as an exile from... I mean, you really can kind of feel the snarkiness, you know? And, um, and he also calls him by his Hebrew name. Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I mean, remember how many times Belshazzar tried... I mean, not Belshazzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar referred to him, but, you know, and we, Daniel stopped referring to himself as the Hebrew... I mean, as the uh, Babylonian name... But there's references, because in fact, I think it was the last chapter. Um, He's quoting King Nebuchadnezzar, and he calls him Belshazzar. So, but it brings me to a point. I've often wondered why their names were so familiar, Belshazzar and Belshazzar. Well, here's what I found by William Shea. 
And that may explain another reason why Belshazzar referred to him as Daniel and not his Babylonian name. When Nebuchadnezzar renamed Daniel and his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, he did not uh, he not only wanted them to blend in with Babylonian society, but he wanted them to change their allegiance to their gods, not uh, to, to the Babylonian gods, not to the Hebrew god. And in Babylonian culture, part of the name should refer to the pagan god. So, Shazar means protect the king, and Bel is the name of one of Nebuchadnezzar's favorite gods, Marduk. So, Belshazzar means God will protect the king. It is quite possible if Daniel, now go with me here, if Daniel would not eat the kosher food, the foods that weren't kosher, and if he wasn't going to eat any food sacrificed to gods, it kind of makes sense that he would not allow his name to exalt a pagan god either. So um, maybe there's a little mispronunciation that may have taken place, and there is no god named Belt. So maybe there's just this little oopsie. So he refers to himself as Belshazzar. So he's still not ruffling any feathers. Maybe they don't hear the mispronunciation. He knows it's there. So he's not offering his name up to a pagan god. The reason I bring this up is there's another example, and it was applied to Nebendigo. So Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Abed means servant. And found on a list in ancient Babylonian clay tablets is a name of a man named Abednebo. Now, these are the Nabonius Chronicles that were unearthed and found, and they talk about um, different people in the government, and this is where I'm getting this from. So Abednebo was named. Nebo was a Babylonian god of wisdom. So his name means servant of the god of wisdom. Now, other journals, because remember the Babylonian Jews kept lots of journals about all this going on, um, but they proved that Abednebo served in a position, um, Babylonian, excuse me, Babylonian journals proved that Abednebo served in the position as secretary to the crown prince Emil Marduk, or evil Merodach, the son, the only son of Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, who did become king. And other journals, which are probably the Jewish journals, the Talmud, uh, also show that Abednego served in this court as well. So we also know that there is no pagan god named Nego. So the name is similar, and this could be the same man recorded in the clay pots. But when Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, or referred to his friend, it was similar to the Babylonian name, just like his, which was changed to Abednego, and not the same as honoring the pagan gods. Just a theory, but I think it's pretty good. And, um, but it's interesting enough to note. So making my point, King Belshazzar would not refer to this Jew as having the same name as a king. And that may be why he calls him Daniel in verse 13. Because, but was probably just fine with Daniel. You know, he's probably okay with that. So going back to the story, Daniel does not want and is not interested in the gifts that the king has to offer. Nevertheless, he will interpret and what it says is, mine, mine, tekal, parson. So our Bibles uh, have a simply translated Aramaic into English, although some scholars have argued that the letters actually appeared in something called cuneiform, which is an ancient form from Mesopotamia and Persian languages. And it's similar to Aramaic, but Aramaic script would have not provided any vowels through um, 
uh, vowels through it. So vowels came in translation. The original letters appeared in reverse order that we see them since this was the way Semitic languages appear. So translated into English letters, it would look like this. We begin to understand the bewilderment of everybody. It's like, oh, I need an interpreter. Yeah, I kind of do. What, you know, what's, what's, what is this, right? And so adding the vowels, we end up with this. Mine, mine, tekel, Parsons. Now this phrase could have a variety of meanings, but it would all be speculation. Some translations in your Bible show it this way, a parson, but um, it still means the same thing. Mind ends in parson, so for the sake of the lecture, we're going to go with that. But they will uh, all conclude to the same meaning. My point is only by divine revelation of God's prophet could it be interpreted. That's my point. It's all screwed up that we need a prophet from God to tell us what is God saying. So Belshazzar had been numbered, he had been weighed, and he had been found wanting. Only God holds the scales if we are to be found wanting or not. He's the only one worthy of judgment. First Samuel says in 2.3, Do not keep talking so proudly and let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. So we always go back to the Lord's the last word. So let's go back. Mine, mine. God has numbered, numbered your days. Tekel, God has weighed you and his scales. I'm, I'm sorry. God has weighed you on his scales and you have been found wanting. So in other words, you're not measuring up. And Parson, God has divided you. That is very direct and very powerful when you break it down. Any, and God divided Babylonian, Babylon that night. And here's how he did it. I love it. Remember I told you they hadn't been penetrated in thousands of years? They couldn't penetrate those walls? They were eight feet wide, right? Here's how they did it. Cyrus had a very smart commander named Ugbaru, or Ugbaru, excuse me, and he had diverted the Euphrates River coming into the city. And as a result, he lowered the water level coming into the city. And literally, his officers and his army waded through the water in the water supply tunnels coming into Babylon and that's how they came in. They surprised them and came up out of the water tunnels. Is that not just, why didn't anybody think, it took them a thousand years to think about that. Wow, that's amazing. But that is quite um, intriguing how they did it. And then they, they stormed the city, they were inside and they stormed the city gates and took them on by surprise and Belshazzar was slain that night. I can't wait to show you this. This is cool. Babylon came to its close. We know exactly the time and date when Babylon fell, and it was October 16th, 539 B.C., when Darius the Mede, acting under the authority of King Cyrus of, of Persia, brought down the city. Tomorrow that marks the falling, 2,557 years ago tomorrow. Tomorrow. Isn't that wild? I just feel like just get all excited about stuff like that. Some scholars believe that Darius was simply a title, such as Pharaoh, and that Darius was Cyrus the Great. There's a lot of I had a real hard time trying to figure out who is is it Cyrus? Is it Darius? Who is you know? And then one said that's a possibility. I said great, I'm going to go with that. Proverbs 16 says, "When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him." Daniel's ways were pleasing to the Lord. And so he lived through all this 
chaos. All these different kings. All I mean, they could have killed him, right? All these power-hungry kings, but they did not. And he stayed in captivity, and he was respectful to them, and they allowed him to live at peace. Which brings me to the fact, are, do we, do our, are our ways pleasing to the Lord? Do we live with that in mind? Is that the first thought in our mind? Am I going to please the Lord or am I going to please myself? What is that decision? And what, what's the takeaway from this lesson? Well, another story. Rumor has it about 200 years ago or so, the tomb of the great conqueror Charlemagne was opened. The sight of the workmen, what they saw was startling. There was his body in a sitting position, clothed in the most elaborate of kingly garments, with a scepter in one bony hand, and on his knee lay the New, pa- New Testament passage with the cold, bony, lifeless finger pointing to Mark 8:36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Ancient Babylon, in all her pageantry, fell to the judgment of God. And you know what? He foretold this. So we must remember, God's judgment may seem slow to us sometimes. We may not understand. And evil may look like it's going to prevail in the world. But God's judgment, he's not, a, he's not deaf, dumb, and blind to what's going on. It may be slow to us, but when it does come, it is always thorough. It is always thorough. Ancient Babylon is gone. No more towering walls, no more beautiful um, uh, water gardens and, and beautiful gardens that were considered the seven, one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. It is now all dust. Nothing is there but desert wasteland, just like God said would be that desolate is going to make it a desolate wasteland, like he said in Jeremiah's prophecy. A desolate forever is actually what he said. And Daniel, his character, we're still reading about his character. That's lingering on. You know, he says character counts, right? Um, that's one we can learn from. He saw throughout his life a procession of mighty rulers who sought to gain the whole world but lost their soul, just like it says in Mark 8.36. Daniel always spoke the truth, and he honored God with all he did. And I'm sure he would have rather been in Jerusalem. He would have rather lived his life in Israel rather than in Babylon. I'm sure he longed for home, but he grew where God planted him. So we need to remember the same lesson here. We need to grow where God plants us. And then also, this is also a story of just righteousness and sin. And the scripture that comes to mind that ties it all together is Psalm 1. Let's just start off with Psalm 1 and we'll close with this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteousness. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteousness, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Well, that just really kind of ties up this whole story, doesn't it? So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, wow, what a lesson. What a lesson in our fallen and chaotic world. It seems to be getting more chaotic as every day goes by. 
But Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are stable, you are true, you are sovereign, and you are king, and you will protect the righteous. We don't know what that means in our earthly bodies, but we know that where our soul is going, and we know to trust you and to not look with our earthly eyes, but to trust in the unseen. Trust that you are working a bigger plan. We love you, Lord. And I pray that this next week that we just keep that in the forefront of our minds. What can we do to honor you today with our lives and our speech? And with that, Lord, we close in prayer and bless you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And in Jesus Christ's holy name, we will lift this prayer to you. Amen. Mm. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed this week's lesson. And I encourage you to fall in love with God's Word.